Welcome and thank you for tuning in to Man in the Making. Yes. Uh, we have with us myself, Rokas, and former monk, Rajan Shankara. Hello, Rajan. Good day <laughs> to you, or evening. <laughs> so, episode 99, huge. Next one is Unbelievable. 100. Yeah. We're still alive and we're still recording our conversations. Time went by quite fast. Yeah, uh, I, I was telling someone we were on almost on episode 100, 100 weeks of recording. And uh, they were like, is that is that three years? And I was like, no, that's like, how many? How long is that? Two years now. Almost two exactly two weeks two years. in a year. Yeah. So episode 104 will be two years. Mm hmm unbelievable that's awesome that's consistency yep just focusing on releasing that episode every week and here we are yeah and that's definitely thanks to your dedication and getting me on the microphone it's 50 50 <laughs> it's thanks to both of us so today uh i believe you have a question or two but i was gonna read from the book Everything is your fault. So we do book. So I published this book, Everything is Your Fault, and it's on Amazon and you can buy it. But I thought I would go through it. And I'm a little afraid to go through it because I don't want to read something and be like, well, that's dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Who wrote that? <laughs> but I'll just read the first uh, few pages of the uh, first section here past uh, the first intro there well not everything can possibly be your fault the starving jobless ill and the insane people of the world are not your fault cardi b is not your fault and neither is the latest reality tv show but everything else is everything that goes on inside your mind and your reactions to life itself is made up of your decisions. The world outside you is not in your control, but the internal response to that world is. And to consciously choose is your greatest power in life. In between stimulus and response is a moment in which we can either act with wisdom or emotion. It is our response to stimulus that shows what we're made of. It shows our character, our personality, and most importantly, it shows what we do when given the opportunity to act. Choose wisely. Here's a philosophical bit of information. There's nothing inherently good, bad, right, or wrong about what goes on around us. Things are just the way they are, and nothing in life has or ever will inform you. I am this or I am that. The fallen pot of boiling water, the broken glass all over the floor, your car running out of gas, and even your cheating spouse will never declare and decide how it should make you feel. Yet, throughout our entire life, there is one decider who remains, who is always present and accounted for, 
and who is always available to judge the situation. That judges you. We apply our own qualifiers to every situation. That means we add qualities and structure building concepts around whatever happens to us. Something is going to make you feel this or that emotion, and it never ends because that is how our mind attempts to stay sane. The mind only understands concrete structure in order to categorize and catalog life events. It's when the abstract, the unknown, and the unexplored anomaly of life happens that we get lost, confused, depressed, anxiety-ridden, and hopeless. Having control over our own judgments in life is a power and skill that we are born with, but never nurture enough to utilize its full capacity. We get true sanity when we start taking responsibility for situations, people, and things that involve us. With responsibility, we can take ownership. With ownership, we can fix and repair a broken situation or prevent anything from breaking in the first place. Try, for once in your life, to take the burden of living on yourself and explore the possibility of relieving others of their pain as we relieve our own. The ability to relieve pain is the greatest skill anyone can have. Not only must we solve our own problems, but once accomplished, we can then become responsible for the pain that others endure on a daily basis. This is the nature of relationships, work and personal, and it is extremely valuable in an ever-expanding global society. To share, support, give back, and withhold our own need for gratification eventually makes us the effective and powerful person we were born to be. Wow, that's not bad. (laughs) I haven't read that in years. That sounds all familiar, doesn't it? It's just... um... I guess I just condensed a lot of the things I learned over life and a lot of the things I've experienced for myself into that first little bit. And I think the rest of the book gets more interesting when I explore some of those experiences that, that I went through and the teachings that go along with it. But really, if you take that one section out, uh, that's the that's the philosophy right there, uh, responsibility and ownership. And I remember the monk who taught me ownership. I didn't understand it quite at the time. His name is uh, Swami. We were in a class with him one day. And he said, if you are in charge of now, we're in a communal space, mind you, with 20 individuals. But he said, if you are in charge of an area like the kitchen, for example, and you're cooking for everyone. You take ownership of the kitchen. And all that while, as young monks, up to this moment, we were taught to kind of be selfless and not own anything and things like that. And he he explained how the, the, the process of ownership is not a physical, selfish mechanism. But ownership is like a mental state, some kind of mental projection that we 
we're almost pretending, I would say, that we're in charge and we're responsible for this area. And it's not that we own it, but we are psychologically responsible. And I think one of the problems with a lot of um, broken situations is there's no psychological responsibility. Uh, if, if, and if someone's not truly in charge of something and can boss other people around, they, they go, well, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And we see it all the time. Not my problem, right? So the idea was to uh, take ownership of all these areas in the monastery and not boss anyone around or not, not, not act like it was ours in any way or in a controlling way, but to make sure that everything went according to plan Everyone else was was satisfied um, and uh, that we were kind of stewards or, or overseers of, of that area. And I guess as you mature in the, the monastery, that responsibility grows and grows and grows. And the more you can do that for, the more areas, the more conversations and and mental states, the more you can take over ownership of you, you and take eventually take everything in ownership, uh, the better things go. So that's, that's, a, that's just that first few pages. I think that's two pages in the book. And yeah, I'm kind of happy I wrote that down. I hope I hope uh, it gets out there. So responsibility and ownership helps categorize and catalog information in the mind in a clean way. But that's from now to the future. So what about in the past, the things that happened to you? How do you rewire your unconscious beliefs from the past? <clears throat> there are several ways to do that. And that is a major form of uh, psychotherapy. I recommend that we relive as much as we can the experience and usually that's through a conversation you you Wait, bring it okay. up quickly stop there i have a quick quote uh from oh. your book so a thought can do more damage inside your mind than it can outside the mind and there's nothing worse than living with someone you feel you can't express yourself to or be yourself around continue yeah. Yeah. So, so I was just talking about this with a young woman in our, in our house the other, other week, it does no good. The experience and the, the trauma does no good where it is. So we're, we're someone else on the timeline that was us in the past. And, and we, we're who we are now. And the process of talking about the trauma, writing it down, bringing it up, bringing it out, telling other people about it, like reliving it through your own voice is, is a way to explain it to yourself now instead of keep it with the person you were or the person it happened to because you're a different person. You're in the future of that past person. And so this, this new person 
is older and can look at it differently. Now, some people are the same. They haven't really changed. They haven't really matured. And so what they're going to be doing is they're going to be reliving the same script over and over again and, and not changing. So this really only works if you've evolved or if you have the ability to detach from who you were. But it's, there's no guarantee. If, if you're trying to relive a traumatic event and it's still painful, some part of you is still the same. You're still hanging on to something. You still haven't learned um, ultimately what life is all about. And that is to go through those traumatic experiences and learn from them. And so there's, there hasn't been enough acceptance, enough uh, resolve to see it through. So this takes time. Um, your question is, is a good one. But your question is not appropriate for someone who it's still, you know, just recently went through something. So enough time, you have to give the individual enough time to change and to move on and to experience other things before they can fully resolve that unconscious uh, trauma. And that's why it helps to, in the timeline of change in a traumatic past, it helps to not let it go completely, but keep bringing it up, keep seeing it from a new light as a new person uh, each day. I, I think alcoholics are a good example of that. Um, you Sometimes you'll meet an alcoholic who, or a former alcoholic who uh, they let you know right away how many days sober they are. And they're just bringing that back up. They're, they're like, it's day 500 for me. It's, day, it's six years today. Um, they don't let that go because, because they, keep need to, they need to keep it fresh with them to look at it from that new perspective. Um, and if they let it go, you know, there's a potential that it comes back somehow to get them. I think after enough time, uh, former alcoholics should let it go, but it's very challenging. It's a, it's a, that's a extremely personal decision. Just like all traumas are a very personal decision on how to deal with it. And, and that person has to know, okay, I'm ready to try to relive this. I'm ready to try to go about it. Maybe there's something else I missed, you know? So that is definitely, uh, you can't force it out of someone. It's that I don't think that would go very well. So for anyone out there listening who has a friend or a fam family member who's going through something or gone through something and you want to kind of shake it, shake the trauma out of them and, and try to get them to relive something, not a good idea. They have to, they have to be ready to say, hey, I went through this. Um, I'm ready to talk about it. They have to do that. One of the easier ways to go about it is to write it down and burn it. Of course, we've talked about that before. The writing and burning is a subtle and safe way to go about something when you're really not ready to speak it into existence. But eventually you'll, you'll do both. You start with the journal and then you go to the full on explanation and, and verbal revelation of it all.
like the person I just talked to, she uh, is a wonderful person, a young, young uh, graduate student and still blaming her father for trauma in the past, not wanting to resolve it, not wanting to forgive it. And unfortunately from her story and her current life experiences, the trauma she, she thought it was like, okay, well, it doesn't matter. I don't need to resolve it. I don't need to think about him anymore. It's fine. I never want to talk to him ever, whatever. Um, but unfortunately, she was carrying that trauma in other ways. And it was, it was expressing itself on her partners. And she was finding, you know, monsters as, as boyfriends. And that trauma was expressing itself in those relationships. So she, this is for people who even think that they have resolved something, but they still hate the other person. That's not, that's not resolving. Resolving is an, is an entire philosophical shift in thinking. It's not religious. It's, it's a, an understanding of, of why things are the way they're supposed to be. If you don't change that perspective, you'll never understand why you went through it in the first place, right? It'll always be, bad or traumatic or someone else's fault it, it, it's it's just a philosophical shift or a paradigm shift is necessary to change the way you believe something so that's that's the foundation of that so if you're against that the situation will never be resolved or it'll be pseudo resolved and it'll just make you feel better temporarily but yeah, a lot of resolution is often just compassion for the other person. And I think that's where Jessica Kramer ended up, right? Being sexually abused from a young age. She had to look at the other person and say, my God, this person is, is, has been traumatized themselves. And they're, they're just lost in the sea of, of, of pain. And it came out on me and, and, uh, that's an extremely difficult place to get to, but that's where we all kind of have to get to with our trauma it co is compassion. And so I told her, I said, unfortunately, you're, it, the situation with your father isn't resolved and uh, you're, it's actually coming out in your relationships and you're, the, 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 you're attracting the, the trauma in the universe still and you're attracting bad people to you and that's the that's one of the the problems with the, the universe and the law of attraction we're, we're so magnetic and we're so we're so similar to the universe that we just attract things and if we're not careful we'll attract the wrong things and we say well why is this happening why me and it's like well you're made up of this substance and you're still holding on to certain things and and those things become a part of you and so the universe sees that and, and magnetizes those parts so she, she seemed to have realized that if she doesn't resolve the thing with her father that she'll keep having terrible relationships and because that's for a for a a, a, a young person the relationship with their parents is uh, really fundamental to their future relationships with their loved ones. It's just so similar. 
and sometimes we can overcome that. And, and, but he was, he's still alive. Her father's still alive and, and, uh, is contactable. And, and I said, don't wait till he dies. Cause when he dies, you'll, you can't resolve it, uh, um, as much as you'd like. He's alive now. And, and it's, it's, it's a good chance to, to kind of speak your mind, even though he won't change. It's not so that the other person says, Oh, I'm sorry. Or things like that. No. The other person doesn't need to do anything. What helps is that you bring it out in the present day between the two of you and say, this happened. And um, that coupled with compassion, coupled with understanding that physical philosophical shift will often bring resolution. And to help you kind of go out into the future um, and be uh, this this current person fully resolved. And then, I mean, the ultimate way to resolve something is to help other people who are going through that trauma. And that's kind of the final step of your own maturity is to help other people. Very nice. Answer. Have we covered this recently? This is another quote. Um, Our awareness likes to think it is what it sees. The mind, on the other hand, is that which judges what awareness sees. That's why our mind is good at judging and categorizing. We spoke about yes. that during meditation episode a bit, but I'm wondering yeah. if you have more to add. Well, that's a good one. Um, that's an important one to remember. So if we write that down, we have two different things. We have awareness, and then we have the mind. Again, philosophical shift. Our awareness is not the mind. The mind is, is just a data collecting machine operating from instinctive and intellectual behavior. It's a system of rules. Our awareness, though, is the mechanism of choice and free will. Free will on one side and the mind, which is a machine on the other. <laughs> we need both. We can't get away from awareness because essentially awareness is, is what we are. And the mind is, is doing its thing. We can't, we can't blame the mind for anything. Our awareness is the thing that we actually need to blame. And that's what, how we take responsibility for our own thoughts and actions. Is, is, is realizing that, that we're not the mind, but we're awareness. We're the one controlling the camera lens and what, it, what sees and what, what experiences, right? So in the, in a, I think we were talking about that before, the experience, the experiencer and the experienced is all, is all awareness. And the mind is just collecting information so that it can build, you know, as Arthur would say, a 3D model of data. And you can collect that that data at different points in time. And, and that's how we that's how we live our life, right? I, I survive because the data I collected about food uh, is equal to survival. So I use that data over and over and over again in order to survive. Well, so what was the the point of the quote was was one with sticks to the other, right? Um, that 
awareness is not what it sees. Yes. Yeah. So the stickiness to the mind is, is the awareness thinking that it's something in the mind, but that's what causes suffering. That's what causes sorrow. So not only is that a meditation concept, that's very important with meditation, but it's also a concept that guides us through life. Again, it goes back to responsibility. I have this part of the book in front of me that I thought was interesting. I wonder if it ties to that. The aphorisms in this book are meant to be daily reflections. The whole book isn't meant to be read at once, and you don't need to memorize every aphorism as if it's a rule. All right, so I'm, I'm, I'm already warning people, you have to think about each one and how it applies to you. It's not like every single rule is true all of the time. Nothing is, is rarely true all of the time. We have to like be fluid with our thinking. Some of the aphorisms are meant for you and others won't apply to your life at all. Or perhaps they all apply. Actually, in the original uh, book I, I had, or perhaps they all apply. So you're welcome. <laughs> That's a cheeky joke. Uh, my editor took it out. <laughs> my intentions are not to directly advise and inform you on exactly what to do or how to be. Instead, I'd like to provoke thought and get you thinking. That's Socrates. Critical thinking is a way to observe and manage personal trauma and confusion. It is an exploratory process that everyone needs to have in order to live the life they want. So if we're not observing or critically thinking, life happens to us. We don't happen to life. We don't act on life. Life acts on us. I learned that from Stephen Covey, right? He said that if you're not managing your time properly, it's like you're standing in the ocean and waves are just crashing into you over and over and over again. And you're only dealing with the emergency of the waves. But critical thinking, observing, managing time properly is all a way of, of setting up a foundation for, for doing what you want to do. The work herein is an expression of my life, and I still don't understand how it all happens to work day to day. Looking back, I'm amazed to be alive, healthy, free, and simple. I wasn't always headed down a good path. In fact, most of my youth was spent hurting others, making money from selling drugs, and having the mentality of a no-good loser thug that wanted to make others afraid at the very sight of me. I was a misguided youth that appeared untrainable, a lost soul with little hope. And the monks did tell me I was untrainable. <laughs> they said I was like a wild horse. <laughs> oh, and then that goes on into some more parts about my life. But that's uh, critical thinking is also detachment. It's this awareness and mind uh, schism or split. So that'll never go away. That comes up all the time. If your mind wants to think one way, if you can detach and pull back those reins a little bit, uh, you have more chance of eloquent uh, survival than thriving, than just surviving. I don't know if I have any more to say on that. 
Then I will go back to awareness and ask you, during meditation, when you say become aware of awareness itself, can you explain how to do that? What do you mean by that? Well, that's a deep um, philosophical concept of meditation. That's hard to explain. Awareness, if it's our natural state, it can be observed. Talked about third person perspectives before, you know, out of body, out of mind experiences where you're watching yourself. Or let's say you're watching a movie. And uh, let's say you're sitting on your couch and you're watching the screen, right? You're not aware of the TV itself. You're aware of the images on the screen, the pixels. If you were to, if, if you were to pause for a moment and, and stop becoming aware of the, the movie, not look away, but change what you were aware of, your focus with your mind, and think about yourself watching the movie, then that would be your awareness turning itself in instead of stuck on something. You'd be aware of your awareness. Okay, which is still awareness. Yes. Okay, cool. Still awareness. It's pure awareness. That's the idea. Pure awareness is is the Shum concept of uh, e-kaif. Pure awareness, just awareness, nothing it's aware of, but itself. But then what's the difference of being aware of awareness? And then let's say you're aware of the awareness of awareness. Like you can just keep layering it and you can observe yourself, observing yourself. So how's that different? The, the idea is, is not to make it that complicated and not to layer it um, because it's, in pure awareness, I don't, I don't know if there's any layering because then you're just adding concepts. We don't want to do that. We just want to take our, our focus and make it our focal point. We don't, we don't create more people after that or more awarenesses it's just one it's coming from us and we can observe it okay and the purpose of that is what well interestingly enough you know that's the theoretical pathway to enlightenment explain so enlightenment everyone knows what enlightenment is right or or understands the concept of enlightenment they don't know what it is, but they know what what they think it is or what the idea behind it is. It's something special. It's something different. It's something that requires work. Um, it's something that is usually involved with meditation and some kind of spiritual realization, right? But but the 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 definitive roadmap to enlightenment is becoming aware of your awareness that's one of the um uh, that's one of the exits on the highway to that 
to that destination. You, you need to incorporate that in order for it to work. Um, if your meditation doesn't encompass awareness, then it's a different meditation. It's, it's a different path. It's sort of like enlightenment has a doorway and, and you have to, it's, it's awareness and you have to choose, you have to choose that to open the door. You, you cannot go another way. Now, the idea behind or the mechanism behind that is sort of like, I don't know, tuning out everything else, right? Like Bruce Lee said, or no, was it Confucius? I think they both said the same thing. Confucius said it first. We're not getting more things. We're, we're dropping off that which is unnecessary, right? So meditation is not getting something. Meditation is removing everything else, stripping away everything else. So the only thing that's left is awareness. Now, when, when our consciousness is the only thing that's left as awareness, we mysteriously enter into more heightened states of, states of consciousness. Well, it kind of makes sense, though, doesn't it? Like when we become aware of something, we usually focus on it. It becomes a part of our routine or we get better at it. We learn more about it. Things get discovered to us. Like if we were to learn more about a car, we'd learn about the internal components and what makes it run and the future of cars and the where, where cars come from. So if, if, if consciousness is one of those areas of studies, it becomes an area of expertise eventually if we study it long enough. In meditation, we're studying awareness and consciousness, and that process unfolds information within us. That information or that data is uh, is the beginning and and the beginning stages of enlightenment data or self realization data, and it, and it comes to us in that if we become a, an expert in the subject. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Nice. So like uh, physiologically, what happens? I don't know. Like, I guess, you know, they say that you slowly go through the pathway of the, the chakras, right? That's the typical mystical physiological answer for enlightenment starts with chakras doorways you go through them those are areas of consciousness where different energies prevail once you go through all of them you have enlightenment right so awareness is the the highway and you are you you are stepping on the highway becoming aware of awareness and then it takes care of itself. In other words, you don't force a chakra to open. You don't force a chakra to do anything. It happens all by itself. All you need to do is become an expert in awareness and, and practice and, and use it. And it happens by itself. It's, 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 
It's the first part is the dedication and the discipline to begin the practice. Then you need to actually be learning the right practice, the right breathing techniques to, to move that energy along the highway. Now that you found it, that's great, but you need to move the energy along it, along it. And then those, those, um, those, it's like a, yeah, it, it just, those energy centers activate by themselves. They move you by themselves. They're like moving you through a, a wormhole. You don't force yourself through the wormhole, but once you get through it, it propels you to the next one and the next one and the next one. Scientifically, we don't, we, we, we cannot know in that way, but that is the ancient teaching of going through it. And I think the only scientific aspect of meditation that we know of is like blood pressure reduction, heart rate reduction. And there's some sort of wavelength frequency emission as well that you can measure. Yeah. I think it's called the Zeta Zeta or something. Yes. That's another one. And um, the activation of the pineal gland. Why does that happen? So the, the pineal gland is, is a center in the body, I believe, that regulates stuff. I'm going to look it up real quick because it's kind of interesting. I mean, I've never really been interested in the science of it, so I've never looked this up. But the pineal gland, also known as canarium or epiphysis cerebri, I'm saying that terribly, is a small endocrine gland in the brain of most vertebrates. The pineal gland produces melatonin, a serotonin-derived hormone which modulates sleep pat patterns in both circadian and seasonal cycles. Society and culture. 17th century philosopher and scientist René Descartes uh, was highly interested in anatomy and physiology. He discussed the pineal gland in his book, The Treaties of Man, written before 1637. And his last book, The Passions of the Soul, 1649, and he regarded it as the principal seat of the soul and the place in which all our thoughts are formed. Okay. And they go on to say, the secretory activity of the pineal gland is only partially understood. The secretory? Its location deep in the brain suggested to philosophers throughout history that it possesses particular importance. This combination led to its being regarded as a mystery gland with mystical, metaphysical, and occult theories around it. Okay, so they go from science to mystical pretty quick in this article. So I won't speak on that because um, it's not really important. But uh, the, the pineal gland is near the third eye, right? So another chakra. So basically, some of the chakras are actually kind of close to physical markers, that we know about um and so mystics tie the two together pretty well so i would say awareness definitely guides you through these different centers and markers in the body and there's a certain natural maturation that goes on once awareness is caught a hold of and i think with enough practice it becomes more important to you over time. And 
you start to realize that it you are your awareness and that's an important area of expertise yourself so i think that's that's partial that may answer partially of what you asked for why why do that why become aware of awareness yeah why partially I don't know. I'm always just conservative with my answers because, or I'm conservative, conservative with the way I think of my answers because I'm not all not knowledgeable. Um, there are other answers out there. There's better things out there too. I, I can't satisfy everyone. And, and really, I think about my discussions with Arthur in that sentence. When you start, when you start scanning language and responses to things you can really get hypercritical about what people say and i think it's important to be critical about what people say and to question everything and for for the teacher i think it's important to always be open to to change and and being open to other perspectives so I'm always, I'm open to another answer and to learn more about another answer. I haven't found one yet though. Actually, the, the, uh, the opposite. Every time I embark on a new knowledge quest, I come back to what I already know. I'll say that. I haven't been surprised by anything in a long time. Psychology stuff is cool. That's, I learn a lot. Um, about psychology but it's like it all comes back to the same things you just learn about a different way of hearing it or different words to describe it or different connections to the same strand of information i have nothing more <laughs> yeah that's good i mean that was the that was uh i was i started to go through the book here and I was like, okay, let's randomly like touch on something. But I ended up at suffering is often prolonged by our attachment to it. And uh, well, we'll end with that. We all identify with something. We, meaning the lens that views reality, our awareness. You could say that the eyes are the lens that views, but that which sees the world is beyond the eyes. The term for that which sees is awareness, and our awareness likes to think it is what it sees. Oh, I believe we're touching. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the mind, on the other hand, is that which. <laughs> there you go. Okay, I just ran, I just randomly uh, went to that. Great. All right. Well, that's that's a sign that we're done. Uh, Thank you to everyone that's that's uh, that listened and is a listener and engages with us as an audience. Uh, please reach out to uh, ask questions or participate in whatever way. And you can buy Everything Is Your Fault on Amazon uh, around the world. And I think we'll go over this book um regularly maybe we'll just stumble on something and and, and create a topic out of it because uh we're so good at rambling <laughs> and i don't know maybe this book is better than i think <laughs> maybe the book 
is an is an actual uh, recipe for an ongoing education in in these things so yeah who knows till next more time. confidence in yourself like how the testimonies you've had <laughs> of course that's great uh you know it's funny the part of the book uh had the first draft had some stuff like that in it and <laughs> So one of my friends read the first draft and she was like, you should really take that other stuff out because <laughs> it's a good book. <laughs> I don't know why you say that. Um, but I don't know. When you've read the things that I've read and it, and it, it just, it's amazing um, that people don't know those things exist. Well, no, it doesn't even matter that people know they exist. Because it, you could show someone a profound book by, um, you know, Epictetus or Aristotle, but they they it wouldn't it wouldn't make sense to them. It wouldn't reach them. So, I guess the truth is, I'm so thankful that I've I can be uh, touched by some hist- some of history's greatest writers. And uh, truly blessed. Not everyone has that interest and and um, capacity. So, you know, I guess that's what philosophers do. They they're they're touched by by thoughts of the infinite. So, that's a cool name for a book or something. Thoughts of the infinite. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> All right, let's close it out here before we yep. lose everyone. <laughs> All right. Thanks. So, Till next time, Rush.